All right, well, good morning slash afternoon. Glad you're here. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to James chapter five, verse one. James chapter five, verse one. Continuing our walk through the book of James. And, uh, you know, here, okay, so this Sunday, we've got first Sunday of spring break. We've got spring forward. And everybody was expecting there to be, you know, the devastating three inches of snow, the deadly snowmageddon. So I thought, let's make it the worst Sunday possible. We're going to talk about money. So that's it. That's what we're doing. Like we're going straight at it, right? So you get to James and you've already experienced James kind of go at all kinds of moral issues, Uh, all kinds of things that we might necessarily go, how do I need to think through these moral issues as a believer, as a Christian? And money is on that list. Uh, And so James is going to go straight at wealth and money and how we think about it. Um, The important thing that we're going to see James bring out is really what he's asking from us is to be purposed, principled, reasoned, wise, and gospel-led when it comes to our finances. But that's not as easy as it sounds. You know, the first thing that we have to admit, and let's just get it all on the table. Here we go, all on the table. Pastors hate talking about money. And they hate talking about money for a lot of reasons. Most of which is, a long and sordid history of the church being abusive when it comes to wealth. I mean, and this is not an American thing. If you think that's just an American thing, consider in the book of Acts, the apostles, the very disciples are walking around and a guy comes up to them and says, I want to give you money so I can get the power of the Holy Spirit so I can cure people and cast out demons and make a living off of it. That's day one. Like, it did not go well for that guy, by the way. Later, Paul would would write things like, go, there are people preaching the gospel to enrich themselves. This is from Paul. So that the church has been wrapped up in weird money stuff from the beginning is not not anything new, let alone in America where there is literally a type of preaching called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel where preachers are saying, you should be as rich as you can possibly be if God loves you and if you'll just believe. Send me $1,000 and I'll send you a cloth that will heal all your ills. And by heal all your ills, they mean clean your dishes because it's worthless with it. Like charlatans and crooks all over the place. And so when a pastor gets up here to talk about these things, he comes in loaded with preconceptions. People in the crowd going, here I am at a church. Another church is just going to talk about money again, how they want your money. I don't want your money. Don't, I don't, no, that's not what this is about. Because there's a flip side to it. And the flip side of it is this, that Jesus talked about money all the time. Jesus talked about money all the time. And if I want to talk to you about Jesus's message and I never talk about money, then I am more interested in my own comfort than your soul. And so I, want, I, I, I have no problem taking on an uncomfortable topic. I want to take on an uncomfortable topic in a way that the gospel is what comes out of it, not a new legalism. And that's half the trouble. You know, in America, we don't have to go far to think through that America has serious issues with wealth and luxury and all these kind of things and how we think about them. When we think about these wealth things, if we never address them and we never talk about how we as Americans and our culture are tempted by money and wealth and luxury, if we never talk about these things, then they will infect us. It would be like if we never talked about sexuality in America. What kind of pastor would I be? What kind of investment in your soul would I be making? 
No, we have to talk about these things. And we need to talk about them in the light of the gospel. Because it's in the light of the gospel that the truth about money, and money is not a bad thing. It in itself is not evil in any way. The Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. What does it say? The love of money is the root of all evil. So when we investigate these things, I want to be putting before you a gospel-centered vision of how we look at our finances, not a legalistic one, which is much faster, much easier to click all the check boxes, much more uh, devastating to our souls because it doesn't require introspection at all. You talk about money in America, you have to talk about debt in America. Debt in America is overwhelming. We don't have to go any further than to talk about that our government, uh, as you know, has $19 trillion of debt. we only, to put that in perspective for college students who are here, in 2006, we had $8 trillion of debt. It has doubled uh, since the economic crisis of the late aughts. Um, we point, about 2030, this is the mind-blowing fact. This is the thing that will blow your mind the most this morning. 2030 is 13 years away. That's all. 13 years to 2030. By 2030, if we continue to go in debt the way we are, our, our national debt will be equal to our GDP. We'll have an equivalent debt that we do a gross national product, um, which is devastating to an economy. And we're not gonna fix it in 13 years. Come on, let's be honest. Like, you're going, we'll fix that. It's 13 years, we got that. Like, okay. Uh, We often love to rail at our government for how much debt it carries and not realizing that's the pot calling the kettle black because Americans hold massive amounts of debt. Not all debt is created the same. There's a difference between going into a reasoned and purposed debt to buy a home versus going into crazy debt because you can't buy the latest gadget that comes out. Uh, But when we look at American debt, most of it is in mortgages. It's massive in its amount. If you have been watching the news enough and wondering why people keep talking about student debt so much, this is the blue segment of the graph. This is in 03. From 03 until today, student debt has become the second largest aspect of debt in America behind the mortgage, massive in its scale. Consumer debt, uh, even worse, has skyrocketed. Uh, This does not include uh, mortgages. This is the infamous credit card debt. Uh, The difference between mortgage debt Uh, car debt, these kind of things is that they're relatively low on their interest rates. Credit card debt carries up to sometimes 25%, which locks people into never being able to pay off the principal. Most of that credit card debt comes in America, not from having to buy essentials to live, but in buying luxuries to surround ourselves in gilded cages. I think the gospel frees Christians to think about money in a much freer way. And I want to share that with you this morning. So James, in James chapter 5, begins to talk about money. And he does so in a way that's so typically James. If you're familiar with James, he's going to put forward just a straightforward statement. It's very kind and emotionally supportive. He's going to make sure everybody's feelings are okay. He's going to make sure no one's hurt. And he says this, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So great. Like we're off to a great start. That's great. Like he starts off by going, hey, rich people, you have miseries coming straight at you. All right. Point one. What does the Bible mean when it says rich? One of the things I've learned in my years on the earth is that almost no one 
will categorize themselves as rich. Like if you're a billionaire, you might admit you're rich, but there've been people that, have, you know, that, that are crazily wealthy and go, no, I'm not wealthy. And I'm like, dude, we're in your helicopter. And he's like, no, 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 like, no, we're not rich. And you're like, because nobody wants to, to own up to that. So let me give you the biblical definition of rich so you can understand what James is talking about here. You have the money that you need to eat, not luxuriously, just survive food. You have the money you need to have clothing, not designer, just keep you warm and cool and able to do what you need to do. Not cool as in, cool as in not, I'm not burning to death in the sun. And you have shelter, not a designer house, just a place to live and sleep. If you have those expenses, if you have a dollar more than that at the end of the day, the Bible thinks you're rich. So now a lot more people are going, okay, uh-oh, that means I have to listen to these verses now. I want to put before you a vision that says anything we have above what it takes for us and our families to live is the Bible's vision of us being wealthy and we need to look at it as a test. That we've been given an excess for God to judge, to evaluate, and to reveal our hearts. How we think through these things, how we use these things, are the way, one of the ways the gospel is going to in, in, come into our hearts. To think, to have, we have to think through these things. James continues in verse two. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, it's so easy to throw out platitudes against those we think that are rich and go, your money is rotting around you. You've surrounded yourselves with luxuries and burning them. But that's not exactly what James is saying. In fact, what James is saying is much more pointed and it has to do with a vision of a person integrating in their world, thinking through the times they live in. Pay attention that he says here, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, gold and silver have corroded. You laid up treasure in the last days. This is a person that has no concept of reality. They're laying up their treasures on the last day, mean, on the last days, meaning your, your money that you stored has no value. It's not gonna do any good. Rather, James is putting forth a vision of a people who think through their wealth and then use it wisely, generously, rationally, reasonably, and that all of those metrics have to be in place in order for the use of wealth to be godly. Now, legalism is all over the church in this. How we think about money may be one of the most legalistic things in American religion. Like if I said to you, the Bible calls us to be generous. You know that's true. I know that's true. How we are generous is a thing that we have to think through, think through our finances, think through our obligations, because the Bible would never say, be generous and don't pay back your lenders. The Bible would say, you owe, you need, to, you need to be a person of your word. And if that is for a time limits your generosity, you need to take care of that. But it's saying, think this through. Like, for example, if I drive to the poorest part of a city and start throwing out of my car windows all the money that I have above my basic living needs, 
I've been incredibly generous, but I haven't been wise. I haven't been prudent. I haven't been reasonable. I haven't been rational. And so none of that could I consider godly. Do you see? A legalism has infected the church about money that just says, well, I should just give away as much as I can. Just give it all away. I know the Bible says that to, to give everything you have and give it to the poor. No, that was Jesus talking to a man who was seduced by wealth. God is calling us to be a people that thinks through these things, through the metric of wanting to be a people in the Christ life. What is generous and what is the best way to be generous? How is, the, how is my, the amount of money I could be generous with used to the best impact? What would God be calling me to do? To think through these things, for them not to just be a checklist of how we live. James says this money is actually corroding. It's not being used. It's just sitting in a guy's room. And, and James is putting forward a vision of there were things you could have done with that money. And I'm not just talking about throwing it out the window to the poor. There are things you could have done with that that might have been well used in the kingdom. Let me tell you a story Jesus told about money. We don't like to tell a lot because it kind of flies in the face of our legalistic visions of money. But Jesus told a parable of the kingdom and he said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a manager who gives each one of his servants an amount of money. It says he gave him a talent. A talent was a, a certain weight of silver. And he says to one man, he gave five talents of silver. And to another man, he gave four talents of silver. And to another man, he gave three talents of silver. And to another two and another one. And he said to each one of them, take this money, use it well, I'll be back. Leaves, comes back later, uh, months later, and he calls accounts. He says, your account is due this day. And one of the slaves, the servants, comes up to him and says, Master, you gave me five talents of silver. I took your money. I used it. I worked it. It has brought back a profit of five more. Here's 10. Next guy, four talents. I took your four talents, Master. I used it. I worked with it. I increased it. I worked hard. I used it well. I've gotten four more talents. Here's eight. And on and on down the line. When he gets done, he says to each one of them, well done, good and faithful servant. But the last guy, he comes to him and he says, I gave you a talent. And the guy says, I know you are a cruel master, harsh. And I was afraid. So I took that money and I buried it in the ground and I've dug it up now. And here it is. I return it to you. I've given you back what you gave me. And he says to that servant, you wicked servant, you didn't even try to use this talent. See, I think if Jesus had told a longer story, I think from the whole of the Bible, he would have said, if this servant said, I, I took the money, I, I didn't cheat anybody, I didn't steal anything, I worked really hard, and I lost the money, I tried, that Jesus would have said, yeah, I know. If you're principled, purposed, wise, reasonable, and generous, and you lost it, that's on me. You succeeding or failing is on me. How you do your work is up to you. But just burying it in the ground and not even thinking about it, that's not a Christ life. That's not an integrated vision of the world. You're just doing what's easy. A biblical vision of wealth is greater than this. A biblical vision of wealth says, 
I need to be thinking through. Now, some people are gifted at that kind of stuff. And then there's people like me who walk around going, we have money. What? Like, I'm not gifted at this stuff. Some people are. But I know what God is calling me to is not to be a genius investor, but to be wise, generous, principled, purposed, rational, to have thought it through, to worked at it. To know that just being generous in the easiest way possible is really not engaging my heart at all. But to be thinking, how can I be generous in the best way? What's the best for me to do with the money that I have in excess? He continues and says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Not only was that money just being selfishly used, it was, it was gathered by fraud. It was lied and cheated about. See, in our time, if we owe money, we owe money. You have to pay that. A Christian should be thinking, I have to, to pay what, I'm, what I owe. I need to, to do the best I can with those things. If you're taking money that should be used to pay what you owe and using it on luxuries for yourself... There is no way you can claim that Jesus as Lord of your life has integrated into your heart in this area. You've been seduced by the gilded cage by increasing your luxuries. At the same time, the freedom of the gospel says, I have, to the best of my ability, I'm paying my obligations, I'm being prudent and wise, I'm trying to think through the realities of my world, I'm using the money to do that, I've been generous and I still have some. One of the best pieces of financial advice I got was from a pastor in college. He'd say, you pay your debts? Yeah. You've been prudent about the future? Yeah. You've been generous? Yeah. Go eat Rocky Road. Now he liked Rocky Road ice cream. I don't like Rocky Road ice cream. So that metaphor didn't work for me. But I understand what he means. And what he means is God also made this life and world for you to enjoy part of it. And if you are invested in the world, if you understand the realities of the world, you're being generous, you're being prudent, you're being rational, and you have money left over to to go eat with your friends or to go eat some ice cream or take your kids to a movie, that's not sin. Investing in people and time and love and community in the world, that's not sin. God gave us access to enjoy the world in ways. The problem is, is when we take all our excess and say it all should be used on our passions and joys. The world was made for Rocky Road too. No, it wasn't. The world was made for moose tracks too, right? Um, I'll I'll tell you a story. Uh, The church I worked at before I came to fellowship, I was the associate youth minister which it means I was a pizza order. That's what I did for a livelihood. It's a pizza order. And we had a uh, worship pastor at the church who drove the nastiest, rattiest truck you have ever seen. This truck died in World War II and he still had it. I mean, this thing was awful. Like he, we would have to at times go out in the parking lot in Texas where there are no hills in Texas and push this thing as fast as we could so he could pop the clutch to get the engine started. If you're young enough in this room, you're going, I have no idea what that means. If you're old enough, you're going, testify Jesus, I've done it. But we live in Tennessee and we have hills. It was easier. Like in Texas, it's just a perpetual flat. So this guy has this truck and he drives it forever. And finally the truck dies. I mean, it just, it, I, it, it, I think it exploded and burned. So like, it was like, we're, I'm done. So this guy, it comes time for this guy to buy a new, a new car. 
Uh, he and his wife had 87 kids. I think that's how many they had. I, they had so many children. It was, ins- I, don't, I don't remember how many they had. They had a bunch of kids. His wife was a real estate agent. She did pretty well. So he goes, he starts getting ready to buy this truck to buy something new. And he's thinking through, what does my family need? What's reasonable? You know, and he, I mean, this guy worked for a month trying to figure out what should I buy? And finally, he decides to buy a Suburban, a Chevy Suburban. He's got a huge family. He wants to be able to get half of them around or one eighth of them in the car. So he, he, doesn't, he doesn't buy a brand new one. It was used. It wasn't a top of the line one. It didn't have, you know, direct TV in it or whatever. Like it's just, just, it was just a nice car, had my, you know, miles in it. He thought it would last well. He, he really worked hard to use his money well, to buy a quality thing that would be purposeful and useful, all this kind of stuff. He pulls up in the parking lot of the church the first Sunday after he has it. I mean, the thing was all waxed up and shiny. You couldn't even look at it. You know, the sun would, and I walk in, I go out and I go, you did it, man. You finally bought it. Cause this guy would plague my office going, I just don't know. And I'd go, literally, I will buy you a car. Get out. I'm tired of talking about this. So he finally buys a car, comes in. We walk in the church. The first person we walk into goes, well, it looks like the church is paying up. You too much money. First thing the guy says to him, first thing he says. Now, that guy who said that, y'all don't need to worry about him anymore. We buried him in the woods. He's gone. He's not around anymore. We, he's gone. He's not a problem anymore. And I understand to a degree because of the legalism in the church that tells people you, you, you should buy the cheapest thing possible. Is that really the best use of the wealth God has given you? Isn't there a responsibility to you to think through, maybe I need to pay more for something quality that will last longer. We bought new furniture for our house. (laughs) Okay, I know. We have two children, two boys. They destroy everything. Everything! When it came time for us to buy some furniture, we thought, let's pay more and get a couch that will survive. Now, if somebody just walked in and said, look, you spent so much more money on a couch than you should have. You could have bought this one. Yeah, and it would have been dead in five years. What good was that? That's just me chunking money out the window. Purposed, reasoned, wise. What's best? What will last the longest? These are not ungodly principles. They're godly principles. What can I afford? You know, um, thinking through, I'm saving for retirement. Wait a minute, couldn't that money be used to help people now? Yeah, there are times when we don't give as much to a retirement account in a month when we can be generous, but I have to think through the future. I have to be aware of the seasons. There'll be a day when I can't work anymore, right? If I save nothing and become a burden to my children financially, what have I really been wise with what God has given me now? Furthermore, I have a degenerative a chronic disease that will shorten my life significantly. I know I'm not going to be around as long, uh, or at least that's what all the statistics say. You know, God likes to make fun of me. I'm going to live to be 110 and be like, kill me. Like that's, but reason tells me I need to be thinking about what's going to happen if I die sooner in my children's life than later. I need to be thinking. That's not ungodly. It's not ungodly to plan, to think. It is ungodly to just go, I don't, I'm not even gonna think about these things. I'm gonna use my money for my pleasures. 
And the legalism that can surround the church in this so dampens the good that God could do in our hearts, in our lives, when we will be wise, principled, purpose, rational, moral, thinking about through what's the best way to be generous? How does my generosity dollars make their greatest impact? How do I do that? Because there are ways that we can't imagine that God will use the way that we steward our wealth that you can't imagine. So uh, my wife had a, uh, a marker birthday a few years ago, uh, a, a decade birthday. We'll say it that way. I gotta be really careful here, Teresa. Like I gotta walk the line here. So my wife is an experientialist, like for her presence, for her birthday, it's not give me a thing. It's a, I want to go do. Like an I want to go do birthday is a waste of money for me. Like what I want is everyone to leave the house and me to go in the dark and sit in the quiet all day. I'll never be loved more. It's like, leave me alone. I love you so much. You gave me the greatest gift ever. So my wife's this, so it's a, it's a big birthday. And for her previous like decade birthday, I had taken her on a trip um, when she was 10. So that's the, so that's where we are. So, uh, so I think this is like her birthday is in April. It's the, it's the October four. And I go, I'm going to take her on a huge beach trip. Like she loves the beach. We've got kids now. She's, you know, preschool kids. You know, the time and age. So I, I get people to watch our kids. I tell them in, in October, we're going to go in April or May. And they go, we're in, we got it. Mark, tell us when you go, we got your kids. Okay. So I'm going to surprise her. This is the plan. It's going to be like, whenever April comes, I'm just going to go, pack your bags, we're going. And I thought, nah, that's, that may not be the best thing. She'll go, our children will die. Because she would assume I would just duct tape them and throw them in the ceiling and, and not be totally wrong in that. So if they survived, they were worthy. That's my parenting philosophy. So I tell her right after Christmas, I make it part of a Christmas kind of thing. For your birthday, this is what you're getting. And I want you to I want you to think through where you might want to go. And so she's so, I mean, she's so excited. She goes on Facebook and she puts up a post and says, um, we're going on a beach vacation for my birthday. Where have you gone? What's great? You know, just tell me. So people just, we went here on an anniversary. We did this for a vacation last year. We did this, blah, blah, blah. I mean, just wealth of information. And then one day I'm walking down the church hallway and a guy comes up to me and goes, well, I wish I could take a beach vacation like my pastor does. And I was like, wow, man, I understand why you're saying that. Is your kid still smoking pot? Like that's what my reaction was. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I didn't say that. I put it on his Facebook page. Like that's, again, this was like a young adult. This guy didn't even have, like it, I'm totally teasing. Now what this guy doesn't know is that before I was a pastor here, I was a traveling speaker. I flew all over the country speaking of things. And I saved every frequent flyer mile that I earned for 20 years. I had almost a million miles in my account. And I cashed in, I don't even know how many hundreds of thousands of miles to go on this trip for essentially free. Now, here's what will happen this time is someone will come to me and say, but you could have donated those miles to a charity and the da 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 if only there was a story in the Bible about a woman pouring a year's worth of perfume on Jesus's head and being reprimanded because she could have been given to the poor and Jesus said, no, she's done a lovely thing for me. If only that was in there. Oh, wait, it is, be quiet. So <laughs> we go on this beach vacation and we're there. We spend the whole week, we're in the Dominican Republic. 
We spend the whole week there and we don't really talk to anybody like the whole time. We're just kind of to ourselves. That's her gift to me. If it's up to her, we would have left speaking to every person in Hispaniola, like everybody in the Dominican, everybody in Haiti. We'd have known their names. We'd, we'd know everybody. Her gift to me is we didn't talk to a soul. So we go there every day. We go down the beach. We have a great time just relaxing, no kids and everything. It's like this. Last day we're there. There's a, a couple sitting there. They're probably just a little bit younger than us um, on there and there. And we get to talking and, and, you know, how many kids do you have? We got, you know, this man, we got four kids. We got two kids. Blah, blah, blah. And it kind of comes out in the conversations eventually. Like, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, you know, we go to church here and we're, we're believers. We keep talking back and forth. Later, the, it was a couple, this dad said to us, he goes, I cannot believe she told you that stuff. I cannot believe she told you. Well, what we'd start talking about somehow is this woman is a doctor. Um, she's a very specific, very, very specified type of doctor who is on the fighting edge of life and death with people and especially children. And when she was first in medicine, uh, she had lost a little girl on the table and she'd never gotten over it. It'd been years. She'd never been able to shake it. And, uh, and so I sat down, I got to sit down with her and go through the Bible with her and say, God calls us to be focused, to be, to do the best job we can, to work as hard as we can and to do the, do right. And if you went to that day with all those things, then what happened that day is, is weirdly not up to you. And she was just like, I, you know, I could see she'd heard it a million times. So I said to her, you have four kids, right? And she goes, yeah. And I said, when they're in your womb, did you pray over them and speak the verse that says, when I was in your mother's womb, you knew me completely. I'm fearfully, wonderfully made. You knit me together in, my, in the unseen parts of my mother's womb. She goes, I prayed that verse all the time. I said, did you ever read the end of it? She goes, no. I said, that's Psalm 139. If you read one verse down, it would have said this. I am fearfully, wonderfully made. The very next sentence says, and all the days you gave me were written in your book before one of them came to pass. Meaning God decided the day you would be born and God decides the day you die. There's a weird way in which if we're irresponsible, I don't understand it, I can't explain it, I can tell you the Bible says that. And I mean, you could watch Jesus land on this woman and release the pain. I know I did everything right. I did everything. I went through every inquiry. I tried. I and it's not on you. It's been a couple of years since that trip. My wife and she still keep on touch on Facebook. This woman said, you would not believe what I'm getting to talk about with other believing physicians where I'm from and the way that message is just impacting people and helping them think through the responsibility we bear. Now, according to some, I should have never used those miles to take my wife on her birthday trip that no good could have come of that, I was being selfish. And I say that we were, being, we were being rational with our money, we're paying our debts, being generous where we can, uh, being principled, we were as fiscally responsible as we could try to be, and we're not perfect, we mess up all the time. But don't tell me that God doesn't use things in ways we can't imagine, it's too easy to say to businessmen or, or the rich and go, you should be giving all your money to the poor. Really? What if reinvesting in their businesses make more jobs, make lower prices? Isn't that a great societal good too? What's the best way 
to be generous. If we never think about generosity, we're wrong. If we do generosity the easiest way possible, we're wrong. It's too convoluted an issue just to throw out a metric because every person in here is different. Every person's in a different stage of life. Every person has different responsibilities. I can only tell you that the gospel frees us from legalism. The gospel frees us to walk straight into a very difficult place and go, God, what do you want me to do? Show me how to do it. I know that you want me to be responsible. I know you want me to be generous. And I know you want me to be a servant. Show me. If you leave here trying to make a checkmark list of how to live your financial life, I failed you. If you leave here thinking, well, yeah, I need to do that. I failed you. Just in general, when you leave here, go, he failed me. Like, because it's always true. (laughs) But if you leave here thinking the gospel has to impact my life, it has to impact my dating life, has to impact my married life, has to impact my parenting life, has to impact my work life, has to impact everything. It has to impact your financial life. It doesn't mean you be irrationally generous unless you know that's what God's telling you to do. It means be thoughtful. It means go to your finances and be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-controlled. Those are the things of the Spirit. If they're true in everywhere else in our life, they're true here too. I want you to leave here free. Free from a overwhelming shame that you're not generous enough, but also free to think through What if I am not being generous enough? How do I live? Why do I live? For whom do I live? These are the things of the gospel. Will you stand and pray with me? So we close our time together. Uh, If you need prayer, someone will be here to pray with you. Um, I I hope that that what you come out of this is that Jesus is better than law. That it would be super easy for the law to say, you need to you know, give your 10% and that's it. That's easy. It's not integrative. But rather God may be saying to you some radically different things about how you think. I hope that's true. The gospel is about life. It's about life with God. And only Jesus gives us that. If you don't know that, when we close here, if you want to come talk to someone about what it, who is this Jesus? How do I know him? We'd love to talk with you about that. Uh, let's pray together as a congregation. We'll be dismissed. Our Father and God, we thank you for the freedom you give us in Christ. Um, you tell us that there is uh, no shame in being a people who work hard, who invest well, who earn, who run good business, who... Uh, compete, who do all the things that are required in our economic world and who succeed and win. There's no evil in that. Uh, The evil comes if we become unpurposed and unprincipled. God, I pray you save us from that. It will rot our souls easily, seductively. Death in a gilded cage is death. Death surrounded by luxuries is death. Father, I pray rather you show us your way, which is um, there are times to take a year's salary and buy a jar of perfume to pour on a man's head. 
Religion would never see that. In fact, one of Jesus' own disciples said, couldn't that money have been given to the poor? And Jesus said, nope, this was a beautiful thing. That extravagance uh, can be evil and it can just be a gift to someone. The gospel's so much more integrative. It's so much harder than just the easy checklist. Give us a life, God. Give us the spirit to show us what an integrated life it looked like this way, how to take the gospel and put it into how I think that I am free in you. Show us then what these things are and how you would have us live. We pray it all in Jesus' name, in his glorious name, amen.